Uh, I was going to do the whole, hey, my name is Don Romano. I'm the associate pastor here if you're a visitor and all that. But Nathan did that part, so I'm just going to let that go. Um, And start with this. We are currently in an eight-week-long series that is an eight-part series of messages with this overarching title, Demonic Schemes. I don't know why, but every time I say that, I think to myself, mnemonic device. But it's not. It's a demonic scheme. Today is the seventh of the eight messages in the series, and I have the untarnished honor of presenting this particular message, which is division in the church. So it's a, it's a demonic scheme. That is, division in the church is a demonic scheme. We ought not think of it as anything other than that. Are you you speaking to me? What are you saying? Okay. Uh, It's just about that static. We're not quite sure about that. So, it's a demonic scheme. These, uh, and it's about, you know, diverting our attention from the things that are important. This series is built in order to give us the grounding that's necessary for us to be able to discern the workings of evil in the world around us and even give us the tools to resist that working Uh, and also... It's created to warn and rescue others that we see falling into the traps that are set by the demonic beings as they attempt, this is what they're about doing, they're trying to mislead us, all of us in the church. They're trying to somehow cloud the relationship between us and our Lord. But they're also trying to trap others so that they do not come to the Lord. In fact, they even want us to work against God's plan for us and work their evil plans according to their will instead of God's plan working according to his will. That's what's going on around us. That is the spiritual reality in which we live every single day. Warning you of these things and uh, equipping you to deal with them is it's an important exercise. Uh, actually, the New Testament repeatedly warns us that as the time draws closer and closer in which Jesus Christ will return, we will see these sorts of activities increase and intensify. And if you are already sensitive to them, then you probably said, that's right, uh, because we can see it going on. Well, we need to be aware that the demonic beings that we battle against 
are crafty. And I don't mean they're building... Yeah, never mind. They are, however, crafty. They're subtle. They're sneaky. They're incredibly intelligent and also very influential. Uh, They are also ruthless, powerful, and they're incredibly old and experienced. They know us better than we know ourselves, just because they understand human nature having so long observed human beings. Well, fortunately, we can turn to our Father for provision to understand them and to resist them. In fact, let me remind us that James, the brother of Jesus, who was also known by the nickname of Old Camel Knees because his knees were calloused, supposedly from kneeling in prayer as much as he did. He spent so much time in prayer. James advised us and advises us that when we submit ourselves to God and resist the devil, that he will flee from us. Now, how can somebody so much older and, 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 and more subtle and powerful than me flee just because I resist? It's not me that chases them off. It's our Father in heaven. Knowing that that's true, that the enemy basically comes for us and tries to influence and affect us, and that it is our Father in heaven who chases him off on our behalf. Knowing that, we should pray before we get into this too deeply. So if you would please stand with me, and we will invoke the presence of the Holy Spirit. Father, it is knowing the truth of these things that we come before you as your children, those already redeemed, those already sealed, those who have nothing to really fear from our enemy, but who are influenced by him nonetheless. We come to you seeking the manifestation of your presence here today, the instruction of your Holy Spirit. And we come based on the blood and the resurrection of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And we ask you to teach us by that same spirit and to guide us and mold us, to embolden us and empower us and to chase the enemy away as we resist him, having submitted ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to know, what do you know about prime numbers? 
Nothing. I heard that answer. I heard that answer. What, any, anybody know anything about prime numbers? Can you fill me in? Yes. Prime numbers are not divisible by any other number except themselves in one. And that's because they are not the product of any other whole number. Prime numbers, by the way, are all natural whole numbers. No decimal points, no fractions, just whole numbers. And they cannot be divided by anything besides themselves and the number one. For example, one, two, three, five, seven, eleven, thirteen, seven thousand nine hundred thirteen. Yeah, thank you, sir. <coughs> why, are, why is this important? What is significant about prime numbers? You can try to factor them. That is, you can try to find all the other numbers that you might be able to divide them by evenly, but you'll never succeed because they are this indivisible unit. In Deuteronomy 6, 4, Moses wrote this. And what this became is, you know, Israel had the entire law of Moses. And when Israel focused on one statement that would be their national identity and their religious identity, and it would reveal to the world what their God is like, they chose this passage. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Wow. That word one can mean several things. It can mean the number one. It can mean any whole number. Uh, it can mean first in a series or any specific position in a series. It can mean only, such as in the only one of its type. And it can mean a unit but it's a whole unit. That's what the Lord is one means about God. It teaches that he is like a prime number. He is a whole unit and cannot be divided. He is the one. And look at the following verses just to kind of fill in and amplify what Moses meant when he wrote, the Lord is one. He said, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, and with all your mind. In other words, when you express your love toward God with your heart, with your life, with your mind, with your energy. Nothing should be lacking. It's whole. Your whole mind, no division in your mind. You're all of your strength, not a portion of it, not a fraction. So 
Moses has given us this thing, this teaching that God is a unit. He cannot be divided. And in our love of him, we should not be divided either. In John chapter 17 at verse 11, Jesus prayed this prayer. And you can grab your Bible if you'd like. John 17, 11. By the way, I'm not to the verse of the day yet. John 17, 11. Uh, Jesus prayed a prayer, and he prayed it for us. And here it is. Jesus is talking to the Father about us. He says, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. And later in verses 20 through 22, he says this. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. A lot of ones in there. Jesus is praying for us. He's predicting about us. There's going to be people down through the centuries who believe in me because of the word that the disciples spread. That's who we are. We're the ones who believe in him because of the words of the disciples. And Jesus asked for us that we might be a unit as he and the Father are a unit, indivisible. You know, it's been said, I've heard it said anyway, that God is the God of diversity, but I did not find it among the teaching of the disciples. The people who say that God is the God of diversity say, look around you. Look at all the different things God has made. Well, I say that God is not the God of diversity. I say he is God over a diverse universe. And I, th- I believe that's more in keeping with the teaching of Scripture. God is Lord over a diverse universe. He created various different things, diverse things. And God himself, however, is unified. There are no internal conflicts in God. There's a lot of conflicts between the various different things in the universe, aren't there? But no conflict within God. 
no division in him. It's an important distinction to make that God is not the God of diversity, but the God over a diverse universe. It's an important distinction because as human beings, we, at least in this day and age, champion the pursuit of diversity. We tend to allow things into our thinking or even exalt things that should not be in our thinking, things that are not true of God when we equate him to diversity the way the world talks about diversity. When we do that, when we allow those kind of thoughts in, we are mentally creating divisions within God that are not there. And unfortunately, this tendency to divide has crept into the church. And it is attacking God's identity as well as the unity that should exist between Christians. Which does bring me to today's passage. So, if you would, turn with me to the book of Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs 16, I'm sorry, Proverbs 6, verse 16, Proverbs 6, verse There are six things which the Lord hates, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies. Have you been counting? How many is that? Six. Let's just stop at six for a minute. See that whole concept of there are six things, even seven? That's just a literary device. It's meant to tell you that there are really seven things, not just six. And all seven of them are important. Uh, It it tells us that there are not six bad things and one worse thing. It tells us there are seven worse things. Okay, they're all really bad. <clears throat> but today, we're going to look at how those first six things bring about the seventh thing. So the seventh thing is this. One who sped, spreads strife among brothers spread strife, causes division. See how that all worked together, the whole one thing and the no division and the prime numbers and all that? That's great. Um, That's okay. I appreciate it. Uh, So we're going to look at those things, and we are going to uh, 
explore how demonic beings use all seven of these things to carry out their evil plan to mislead us and to keep others from Christ. Boy, that was hard one, wasn't it? So, <clears throat> we need to understand, it is Jesus' desire that we be united. We, not just inside here, but Christians be united. It is his desire that we be united. Uh, but the enemy, in his subtlety, remember he's subtle, um, he divides us. And we, in our own sinfulness, kind of help him from time to time. Yeah, that, that's a bad thing. So let me give you a spoiler alert here. Because uh, I am not really going to focus on diversity this morning. That was just a tool. I'm going to talk about I am not going to talk about accepting people as they are or as they think they are. I am not going to talk about ethnicity or race. I am not going to talk about justice or equality or equity or any of the other things that people use to create division today. Instead, I'm going to talk about creating Division. So one of the greatest weapons used in warfare is this. Create in your enemy a sense of dissatisfaction with their leadership. If you can do that, that will flow down to the population of their nation and may cause internal disputes that overthrow the government that you're at war with. You get that? So discontent among the people under your enemy. That's a, it's a really powerful tool. But there is something worse. And that is creating suspicion and mistrust or distrust within a community. That's even worse. See, create a sense of injustice or competing goals. Marcus Cicero, a Roman statesman and philosopher who lived in the first century BC, said this, a nation can survive its fools and even the ambitious, but it cannot survive treason from within. An enemy at the gate is less formidable, for he is known and carries his banner openly. But the traitor moves amongst those within the gate freely. His sly whispers rustling through all the alleys are heard in the very halls of government itself. Sedition, suspicion, 
dissatisfaction, self-protection, self-aggrandizement. These are always the enemy works in or through us. Or sometimes through our words, sometimes through our actions in order to thwart God's goals. So let me remind you the main point of uh, these series. There are demonic forces out there that are working in stealth mode continually in order to accomplish their own agenda and frustrate God's plans. And we cannot resist them unless we're aware of their methods and we submit ourselves to our Lord. Well, since they resist God's agenda, what then is God's agenda? What is God trying to do in the world? Well, long ago, God made a promise that he would bless all the families of the earth through one person. Down through the years, he orchestrated the events that would lead to that person and that blessing to a point where he sent the Lamb of God into the world in order to take away the sins of the world. After that, he began recruiting people who would carry the good news about that sacrifice and the carrying away of the sins of the world. And that that people that he recruited would carry that news, that good news, that gospel to every people group on the planet. So that none should perish because it is not the will of God that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. For in this matter, there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile, or between one ethnic group and another. Uh, The same Lord is Lord of all. He abounds in riches for all who call on him, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. So then, how will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how will they believe unless someone tells them? And how will they hear unless someone is sent? Um, Yeah, we need to be out there preaching because we're, we're that people, that people that the Lord recruited in order to carry the good news out there so that people can hear through our preaching but also through our lives and they can come to believe in the one who can Take away their sin. See, God's agenda is to keep his promise and to partner with us in order to spread that word, that good news, that gospel of him doing exactly what he said he would do. So what's going on here with the demonic influence and all that kind of thing? Um, Those demonic beings are attempting to divide us so that we will not be effective in carrying out that mission. We will not be effective 
to preach the gospel in the world that we're sent to. And then people will perish and not be enriched by the riches of God that he promised. So um, how do demonic beings do this? How do they get in between us and our mission? How do they sow? That's like planting, right? How do they plant division between us? I have to let you in on something, something I started and something I need to full of kind of fill out here before we go ahead. Our enemy is subtle. I mean, we've all heard about the knife that's so sharp you don't even feel it cut you. He's like that. He gets in there and makes this cut that divides us without us sometimes even recognizing what's going on. He whispers into our thinking in order to move us, think this now, without you even realizing he's doing it, the enemy gets in there and he manipulates our thinking and moves us toward our own greatest weakness. Right? He pushes up us toward our own deepest depravity. He pushes open our most painful wounds. And he attempts to elicit from us actions, reactions, thoughts, words, responses that hinder our fellowship, and drives wedges between us. Or that creates suspicion among us. Or that destroy our trust in one another. I mean, something that happened to me 60 years ago, he might take advantage of in order for me to become suspicious of you. How that, how that is just, that's wicked. That's evil. See, in, in other words, the enemy constantly tries to use us against our own selves. He tries as we try to submit ourselves to God, he gets in the way and in between. He constantly stimulates each member of Christ's body to do his own thing. Mm. Yeah, rather than carry out God's plan. The, the result of that is an ununified body. All right, If we allow the enemy to have his way, we are no longer unified. We are no longer able to carry out what God is trying to do. The result is not a unified body in which each part carries out its function in some glorious and harmonious and graceful movement of effort. Instead, the result is a body 
that brings shame to its head by moving in spasms instead of fluid motions, by wasting energy and even carrying out self-destructive actions. See, God's trying to get us to do something that works together beautifully and harmoniously, bringing the joy of salvation and fellowship with one another and with Jesus Christ and with the Father. And we can't move that way. We, by our division, separate ourselves from God and move as though God has no control over his own body. It, this, this is insidious. This is an attack on the image of the bride of Christ. It, this is an attempt for the enemy to show Jesus, us, the church, Christ's bride, as being full of spots and blemishes instead of the way Christ died to make us without spot, without defect, defect, without wrinkle. So all that stuff, and we still haven't talked about seven ways that the enemy does this, but it's important for us to understand this is an ugly thing. This is, this is a manifestation of the presence of sin. And it has to be resisted. So then, what are the seven ways that demonic beings sow division among us, plant things that cause division? They grow up, and the fruit they bear is division. Go back to Proverbs 6. Starting at verse 16, I'm just going to go through them. Haughty eyes. The word translated as haughty there um, means lifted up. Lifted up. Um, eyes throughout scripture are used as a symbol of intelligence. And uh, in this case, we should think of it as one who is lifting his own thinking. We, my thinking above God's thinking. This person, the person who does this, does not only think that his way is best, he thinks his way of thinking is the only right way of thinking, and all other thinking is sinful. This person has spiritual pride. And I'm not talking about a person who thinks that his way of thinking is correct, or that his conclusions or other conclusions are incorrect. What God is talking about here is a self-righteous person. We see this kind of thing everywhere, but let's focus on what happens inside the church because that's where the division is trying to be made. Um, there are divergent ideas about everything out there, all right? 
everything from how the preacher should preach to whether the carpet should be brown or blue. There are. And there are people who attach moral uprightness to those kinds of things. And all that does is cause people to take sides. And uh, in such arguments, churches can split literally over the color of the carpet. Yes, we've seen it. Second thing, a lying tongue. Demonic beings sow division among us by our own lying tongues. Uh, The word translated lying here is not about error or making a mistake, all right? This is about deception. It's intentionally deceiving. Um, People can make mistakes. They can be wrong, but we must not deceive one another. Demonic beings often introduce deceptive ideas that distort God's identity. Who is God anyway? Or they distort the nature of what Jesus has accomplished for us at Calvary. Well, he died for this, but not for that. Here's an example. And this is actually moving through the church in the world today. This is something that's really going on. If you listen carefully, you will find preachers and teachers out there teaching that there is no need for people to repent from sin. The idea goes against the very heart of the gospel because the gospel is about the forgiveness of sin or more accurately, the propitiation of sin. But where there is no sin, as these guys suggest, then there's no need for repentance. And Jesus wasted three years... And John, before him, wasted I don't know how much time preaching repent for the kingdom is at hand. A third way that the enemy sows division among us is through hands that shed innocent blood. Now you might think this is about murder, and you'd be right if you limited yourself to Proverbs. But Jesus had something to say about this. He actually expanded on this concept uh, in Matthew chapter 5. And if you want to go there, you can, but I'm going to shoot ahead and say this, that Jesus took things like slander, gossip, character assassination, and he equated them with murder when he said this. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard it said that you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, 
And there, remember, your brother has something against you. Leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Matthew 5, 20 through 25. So let me ask you, are you angry with someone in here? Or outside of here, but in the body of Christ? Have you caused your brother or sister in the Lord some level of pain? Don't take communion today until you get that straight. That's Wow, let me move on to the fourth one. Demonic beings tend to sow division among us through hearts that imagine wicked plans. Um, Let me just remind us that these beings combine their subtlety and our sinfulness in order to accomplish this. Calamity, sin, injustice, deception, false, idolatry. All of these are wrapped up in that word that translated wickedness. The thing they have in common is our heart. That's where they dwell. What is the fruit of these things? That's where we need to focus. See, do our thoughts lead us and others closer to Christ or away? Do our plans lead others closer to Christ or away from him or even block their way to him? Fifth fifth thing that the enemy uses to sow division among us. Uh, Feet that quickly run to evil. Some people are just drawn. Wickedness, depravity, misfortune, disaster, inferior quality. Think about that one for a moment. Um, What things do you find to do in your idle time? Do those things edify you and others? That is, do the things that you do in your idle moments build people up or tear people down? Maybe in your eyes, maybe in their own eyes, do you attempt to build them up or tear them down in God's eyes? We can't pray something good for somebody without building them up in God's eyes. The sixth thing that demonic beings use to sow division among us, false witnesses who breathe out lies. The concept is of a breach of faith. It's about about trust in one another. This is not some strange idea out there that somebody might be trying to breathe into the congregation, but rather this is about sowing the seeds of suspicion between us. 
So we're going to try to stop that static, and now I can't move both of my hands like a good Italian. <laughs> so false witnesses who breathe out lies. Um, breach of faith. L let me ask you this question. Do you find yourself willing to compromise on truth? Let me say it a different way. Um, when you find another Christian taking a stand for truth, do you wish he would have a softer approach? There's a subtle thing. Hmm. Wow, you know, if you only took a softer approach, you might be able to maintain unity or at least peace. Say, look, we must love unbelievers, right? Because when we're talking about taking a stand for truth, we're generally talking about somebody who doesn't believe what God says. Whether that is a person who claims to trust Christ or not, we have to, we've been called to, we've been commanded to love those people enough to engage them with God's love and truth. We must not just love truth enough to offend them. Can I say that again? We have to love them enough to tell them the truth, not love the truth enough to offend them. We have to be inviting them in. More than that, we have to be praying them in. Because God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. How can we do less? How can we set up that barrier? The seventh thing Well, the seventh thing is sowing discord among brethren. But as I've been saying along each of these six things, this is how the enemy sows division among us. But even that itself is one of his tactics. And when it talks about that, the idea has to do with controversy and contention and quarreling. Have you ever seen that among Christians? Have you ever been involved in that? What about this controversy thing, okay? Let's ask the question, do we spend the majority of our time, the majority of our thinking, the majority of our effort on things that divide us? Are we constantly looking for the error? Remember, Jesus called us to love God with all our heart, soul, and strength. No division. Not even between us. What about this thing, contention? Is your mind, let's ask the question, is my mind focused on correcting others? Am I the thought, the doctrine police? The, the practice police 
am I the one who has to correct which songs are sung on Sunday morning? Do your words and actions speak of a contest between you and other Christians more than cooperation in the gospel and the Great Commission? What about quarreling among ourselves? Do our conversations with other Christians result in disagreements or in making arguments? Not arguing where your voice gets louder and louder and louder, right? No, I'm talking about we just engage in the practice of taking opposite perspectives and making an argument to support our position. Is that the thing that characterizes our conversations? Or do we celebrate? That's what fellowship is. We celebrate the things we have in common. <clears throat> do my words create an atmosphere in which my brothers and sisters feel the need to defend themselves. That's a lot. That's a lot. It's a big concept. It, it's going on around us all the time. And, and we started out, you know, about that whole bit, how do we resist this? The whole point of this series of messages is to inform us and equip us so that we can resist the efforts of the demonic schemes and yield to God's plan. So turn with me, if you will. It's time for me to ask and then try to answer the question, so what about all this stuff? Yeah, it's all out there. Yeah, the enemy is using it. Yeah, we see it. Yeah, we know it. Yeah, we agree. My own sinfulness and weakness gives the enemy's subtlety power. So what do I do? Turn with me to Ephesians 4, 22 through 25. I want to invite you at this point to a little self-reflection and to find a place where you and God can get alone and deal with whatever he's revealed. And if that place is down here, it's available. Come on down. Just make a little altar between you and God and place the things he's convicted you about on that altar and leave it there. In reference to your former manner of life, Lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one 
with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. I was searching for a belt yesterday. Went to the store to buy a new belt because as I was cinching up the mass, my old buckle broke in half. So I was in the store with my belt on and my phone holder on my belt and my phone inside of it and my coat on and I'm trying to wrap these belts around and determine is this one long enough or is it too long and I couldn't do it because all this stuff was in the way. I had to put some things off. I had to put my jacket off. I had to, you know, deal with the holster on my, on my hip, realize that there's already a belt there taking up extra space. I had to put some things off in order to put something on. That's the way it is in our lives too, in our behavior, in our fellowship, in our character, in our nature. There are things we have to take off. That's a nice metaphor for an unpleasant word that is absolutely essential. We have to repent. We have to take the old dead things that God wants to remove from our lives that are weaknesses in us that the enemy can use in order to cause division for us and we need to confess them to the Lord and tell him we think about these things the same way he does and take them off. Lay them on the altar under the blood of Christ and walk away from them. Too many times we confess and take them off and put them down and pick them up and walk away with them. It's not repentance. It might be confession. It's not repentance. It's not leaving it there. So take a minute. Take a minute. And uh, I'm going to move us toward communion. Take a minute and allow the Lord to tell you this is the thing. Get rid of it. And find a place to do that. If it's up here, that's great. That's fine. We'll be ready.